If you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, I wish you would open it, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, and find the last chapter, Matthew chapter number 28. And in just a few minutes, we're going to look at some very, very familiar scripture there as, God, as Matthew's gospel comes to an end. Now, I think that we all know and we would all agree that God wants people to be saved. I don't think there's any question about that. In fact, God wants everybody to be saved. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so... In the heart of God, in the mind of God, it is his desire for every living person to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, maybe today would be the day that you make that decision. So I think we all know God wants people to get saved. And I think we also know that God wants those of us who have been saved, those of us who are saved, God wants us to grow in our relationship with him. He wants to bring us to a place of spiritual maturity where we are becoming increasingly more like Jesus. As one pastor has said, God is not looking for perfection out of us, but he is looking for progression. He's wanting us to grow and to mature in our relationship with him. And not only that, but God is wanting us and does want us to spend our lives sharing the message of salvation with as many people as possible. So as we think about really the purpose of our lives, if we really wanted to just reduce it down to the heart of the matter, I think we could say it like this. The purpose of life is to know Christ and to make him known. In other words, when we one day are coming to the end of our time on earth and we're looking back on our, on our journey down here on earth, how will we know that we have fulfilled our purpose? How will we know that our life was successful or that our life has amounted to anything? Well, if we can look back on our lives and say, you know what? As I lived on the earth, the most important thing to me was my own relationship with God. I, I put a priority on that, and I tried to develop that relationship with Him. I wanted to know Christ, not only as Savior, but as Lord and as friend and as, as comforter and, and all the things that He is. But not only did I want to know Christ for my own self so that I could grow in that relationship, but I endeavored as best I could to make Christ known to those in my circle of influence, to those in my sphere of opportunity. And that kind of leads us to the mission statement that we've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. And I want us to begin there again today. What is the purpose of our church? Why are we here? And what is our mission statement. Well, I think by now we're all getting pretty familiar with it. We're going to put it on the screen again today, just in case you've missed the last couple of weeks. But the mission statement of our church is simply this, to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Now, that, that it is right there, very succinct. Let's say that together, to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Now, let's see if you can say it by yourselves. Or let's see if you can read it by yourselves, right? Because it's on the screen. Now, notice when we worded that, because we really spend a lot of time on, even though that's just a little phrase there, we spend a lot of time. Notice that the statement doesn't say, to help all people have new life in Jesus Christ. We could have made it say that. And that would have been a good statement because if the purpose of the church is to help all people to have new life in Jesus Christ, what we would have been saying is, our purpose is to help as many people as we can to get saved 
to have new life in Jesus Christ. But we didn't use the word have, we used the word experience to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Did you know it's one thing to have something, but it's another thing to experience something. I was reminded of this this past week. Some months ago, I guess it was back during Christmas, somebody gave me a gift card to Pappas. And so I've had that gift card in the console of my car for months now. And I've, I've, it's mine. They gave it to me. I received the gift. I was glad to have it. And the other day, I started thinking, you know, I've had this gift card. I have this gift card. But I've not experienced this gift card yet. And so I went to Pappas, and I ordered, Pappas Seafood, and I ordered some mahi and a baked potato and some carrots and one of those long pieces of bread and a bunch of butter to dip it in. And I ate all that, and I said, you know, it's one thing to have the gift card. It's another thing to experience the meal, right? Now, there are a lot of people, I believe, who have salvation. They have received new life in Jesus Christ. They have that. But for all practical purposes, they're not experiencing what they have. They, they, they don't have the joy. And sometimes we're all in this boat. Sometimes we say, you know what? I have eternal life. I have new life in Christ. But I'm not experiencing the joy and the peace. And, and I don't seem to be experiencing any power in my life. Or I don't have really maybe the faith that's going to help me. We're singing these songs, the battle belongs to the Lord. And, I'll, you know, see, I don't really seem like I'm having that overcoming faith in me. What does this mean? It means it's possible to have new life in Jesus Christ and yet for all practical purposes not to be experiencing that. Let me ask you this question. How many Christians do you know who consistently experience in their daily life new life in Jesus Christ and all that goes along with that. So that's the purpose of the church. Not If the purpose of the church was just to help people get saved, here's what we would do. Here's a person, we lead them to Christ, they get saved, now they have new life in Christ, and so we say, okay, good, that one's saved, they're going to heaven, let's go get somebody else saved. And so we go over here and we get this person, we lead them to Christ, Christ saves them, we say, okay, now they have new life, let's go to the next person. But no, the purpose of the church is not just to help unsaved people get saved and to have this life. It is to help people, all of us who've already been saved, to experience on a daily basis all that is involved in, our, in the new life that we now have in Jesus Christ. You say, now, John, how are we going to do that? Well, it gets back to those purposes that in the Bible, God has laid out the purposes of the church. We didn't make this up. God has put it in the Bible for us. What are the purposes of the church? Number one, to lift up Jesus in praise and in worship. That's what the first half of this service is dedicated to. And then in the proclamation of God's word. To lift up Jesus. You say, what does this mean to lift up Jesus? To lift up Jesus so that in the, in the proclaiming of Christ, in the lifting up of his name, in the preaching of the gospel, we are proclaiming to people that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that Jesus Christ is the only hope we have to have our sins forgiven. We lift him up in that way. And not only that, we lift Jesus up as the solution to every problem that we face in, in life. The, 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 the answer to our questions is found in Jesus Christ, and the problems we have are all dealt with one way or another in Jesus. So the purpose of the church, to lift up Jesus. Secondly, to build up believers. That is, those of us who already have Christ, we have this new life, but we look at our lives and we say, yes, I have it, 
but I don't always experience it. And so I need to be built up in my faith. And, and I certainly do, and all of us do. This is the purpose of church. This is the purpose of why we're having an emphasis, trying to get people to go to a connection group. Because in that setting, not only can we learn more scripture and God's truths and principles, but iron sharpens iron. And so we're developing friendships and relationships with other people, build up believers, and then to reach out to others. This is the thing that God wants us to do. It's not all about us. It's not even all about First Baptist Church. It's about reaching out to people. And this is why once we got all these buildings paid for and uh, the uh, great investment and all, with the emphasis we had had for so long to build all these buildings and pay for these buildings, and then we got talking about, okay, now that's been the focus of First Baptist for so long, but now what are we supposed to do? The buildings are built. Now what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to take the gospel message that is the good news of Jesus Christ, and here was our phrase, beyond these walls, beyond the walls of our church so that others can know Christ in a very personal way. That is, we are to reach out to others, helping them to receive new life and then to grow and experience what God has for them. Now, in Matthew 28, most of you are familiar with the Great Commission. And Jesus spoke these words to his disciples uh, in Galilee not too long after, before he went back to heaven. And let's just begin reading in verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, that is to these disciples, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That word nations in the Greek language, ethnos, it literally means people groups of all the peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus gathers his disciples together on this mountain in Galilee, and he explains to them that he has all the authority. Now, if somebody has the authority, that means they can tell you what to do, and you're supposed to do it. Well, Jesus said, I have all the authority. I'm God in the flesh. I've died on the cross. I was buried. I've been raised to, to, again, and I'm very much alive. And so Jesus gives this, this great commission. And in the great commission, he basically says three things. He says, what I want you to do is to go to all the people's Red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, Democrat and Republican, all the, well, they didn't have that back then, but they had what they had. All the people groups in the world and tell them how they can have new life in me, make disciples, make followers. But then he said, not only do I, do I want you to make disciples, I want you to mark them. I want you to identify them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what baptism is. It's a person who's become a disciple and now they've got on that white robe, and that's their way of saying to everybody who's watching, just like my robe is clean and pure and white, Jesus has made my heart that way. And we lower them into the water and we lift them back up. It's symbolic that they have died to an old way of living. They've been raised to walk in a new way of life. They have new life. And Jesus said, after you make disciples, don't let them be secret disciples. Mark them, identify them, baptize them, and let it be known where they stand. But Jesus said, it's not enough that you make disciples. It's not enough that you mark disciples. What you need to do then is to mature these, 
these disciples in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And so if you think about the three purposes of the church, make disciples. How? By lifting up Jesus. Mark disciples. How do we do that? By baptizing them, building them up in their faith. And then more on the building up, teaching them to observe all things so that they can be the person that Christ wants them to be. But he said, you do this to all the peoples. You reach out to all the peoples in all the world. And so this is what we've been thinking about and what we are thinking about in our church. How can we as one church, there are many churches in our area and many good churches in Pasadena and Deer Park and Laporte and all the surrounding area, many good churches and we're just one of them. But how can we do our part to lift up Jesus, build up believers, and to reach out to others? The question is, what's it going to take for us to reach our community? Now, we talked about the vision that we felt like God gave us to uh, reach 10% of our community for Christ, about 15,000 people. Now, we'd like to reach all 150,000, but let's just say 10% of that. How can we reach that many people for Christ? Now, I want to say this again. This will be the third week in a row I've said this, and it'll, it'll be the best thing I say in the whole sermon. As badly as we want to reach all the unsaved people for Christ, remember this, at the end of the day, we will not be judged by God based on how many of them we reach. Why? Because success is not measured by numbers. Success is measured by obedience to God. You know, one of the things I love about this vision God has given us to try to reach 10% of our community, it's like God has given us a vision, a goal, something to aim for, work for, shoot for, pray for. But in the giving us of that goal, a clear vision, it's like God said, okay, there's the vision. And what I want to do now, God says, I want to take all the pressure off of you. Because it's not your responsibility to reach. You can't save anybody. It's like when I come out here and, and preach a sermon. Well, at the end of the sermon, God's not going to judge me by whether one person got saved, two people got saved, 10 people got saved, or 15 people got saved. I can't save anybody. God's going to judge and evaluate me by during these 30 minutes that I'm standing up here, am I faithfully preaching and teaching the Word of God and lifting up Jesus? What do we do? We obey God and we leave the consequences to Him. We can't, we can't affect what happens? We have no control over the outcome. Paul said, I have planted the gospel seed. Apollos came along and watered the gospel seed, but neither one of us could make it grow. It was God who made the garden grow. And so I love the vision to reach all these people, but also love and appreciate the fact that God says, there's no pressure on you. You can't do it. Only I can do that through you. And you will be judged not by whether any of that ever ha even happens. You'll be judged by whether you were faithful to do what I have called you to do. So that being said, as I have thought about this, and I've thought about all the things that we read in the Bible about reaching people, I believe that it's going to take four things for our church to reach our community for Christ. Now, we might could come up with a list of 44 things, but I think even if we had a list of 44 things and we reduce that list to the we tried to simplify that list. I think you would come back to these four things that I'm going to mention today. The question is, what will it take for our church to reach our community for Jesus Christ? Now, let me just mention them. Number one, it's going to take, in your life and in my life, security in and satisfaction with Jesus. 
In other words, if we're going to be an effective witness, the very first thing it's going to take is we're going to have to know for sure that we are saved. We're going to have to be secure in that relationship. Now, go back in verse number 16 of Matthew 28. This is interesting. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Verse 17, When they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, these 11 disciples, you have Peter and Andrew and James and John and, and, and Nathaniel and Thomas. And, and so here all these disciples are, and they're worshiping the Lord when they see him, but some are doubting and some are questioning. And, and so God doesn't want us to stay in a, in a place of doubt. He wants those doubts to be gone. And that's why Jesus said, don't doubt. In essence, he's, he didn't use those words, but he's saying, all authority has been given to me. Don't question who I am. You need to be secure in your faith. If we're going to lead other people to Christ, we've got to know for sure that we're saved. What, what, if we don't know for sure that we're saved, what are we going to say to those we're trying to lead to Christ? Follow me. I have no idea where I'm going. No. I mean, we're not going to be as effective witnesses as we would be if we said, I know I'm, I have this assurance in my life while we spent the last two Wednesday nights talking about how we can defeat doubt in our life. But not only security in Christ, we're going to have to be satisfied with Jesus. Let me ask you today, as you think about your relationship with Jesus Christ, those of you who are saved, and you say, John, I know I am secure. I know that I have new life in Christ. Let me ask you this question. How satisfied are you in your relationship with Jesus? I, mean, I think a lot about that. You know, one of the things I pray five to six days a week. I pray this prayer. I say, God, there's a point in my prayer where I say it like this. I say, Father, I pray that you would be more real to me than anybody else in my life. That you would be more real to me than my family. That you would be more real to me than my friends. That you would be more real to me than First Baptist Church. I pray, God, that you would be more real to me than anybody in my life. And then I say this. I say, God, I pray that your presence in my life, in the precious person of the Holy Spirit, would be more real to me than if I had you in the flesh. Now, you think about that. How many of us have thought at different times in our life, if I could only see Jesus, <laughs> if I only had him in the flesh, I wouldn't worry about anything. Well, we all feel that way. But remember what Jesus said in John 16 and verse 7 to those disciples. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you, and he'll be living on the inside of you. And Jesus was saying, it is better for you to have me living in your heart in the person of the Holy Spirit than it would be to have me right by your side where you could see me, hear me, and reach out and touch me. And we read that, and anything Jesus says is true. Everything he says is true, and yet sometimes we think, really? Is it really better not to be able to see Jesus? And he said it is because he can always be with us. And so I say, God, I pray that you, that your presence in my life, in the precious person of the Holy Spirit, would be more real to me than if I could see you with my eyes than if I had you in the flesh. Satisfaction with Jesus. Think about this. If you're not satisfied with Jesus... Or if I'm not, that means that we don't know him as well as we could know him. Now, think about that. If you don't know Jesus as well as you could know him, and you're not as close to him as you could be, you're going to have a, think about it this way, you're going to have a very difficult time leading unsaved people to meet a Jesus 
whom you barely know. I mean, if you know him at all, you can lead people to him. Just like if you have doubts, you can still lead people to him. But you're going to be a much more effective witness if you don't have doubts. And you're going to be a much more effective witness if you really know Jesus. This is why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, here he is in a Roman prison and he prayed this prayer. He said that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And we read that and we say, Paul, what do you mean that you may know Christ? You got saved back there in Damascus, Syria. I thought you already knew Christ. And Paul would say to us, oh, I already know Christ as Savior, but I want to know him as Lord and Master and King and Friend and Deliverer and Comforter in every situation I go through. I want to know Christ better. And so when Paul introduced people to Jesus, he was introducing them to a Jesus whom he knew well. And I'm asking you today, do you know Jesus like that? The first thing it's going to take for us to reach our community, we ourselves must be secure in and satisfied with Jesus Christ. Number two, we must have a concern for lost souls. Some of us have been saved so long We've forgotten what it was like to be lost. Some of us have in our circle of friends only Christians. And since we have been saved so long, we forgot what it's like to be lost. We're never really around anybody who is lost. And so we don't know what it's like to be lost, or we've forgotten what it's like to be lost, or we don't think what it's like to be lost. That word lost is not even a word you hear very much in churches today, but to be lost. If you've ever taken a trip and you've taken a wrong turn and it was dark and you could, you're lost, it's a hopeless feeling. And all around us, we as Christians are living around unsaved people. They're lost. They have no direction in their lives. Now, I want to put three, three verses on the screen today that really illustrate what it's like to be lost. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 59 in verse 8. God is describing unsaved people. He's describing lost people. And here's what God says of them. He says, the way of peace they have not known Think about that. In life, there's a way to have peace. There's a road of peace. And God says, the lost are not on that road. They have not known peace. The way of peace, they have not known. What do we know about lost people? First of all, they have no peace in their life. I'm not saying they don't have any fun. I'm not saying they never have an exciting experience or a happy day. That wouldn't be true. But they have no peace. The way of peace they have not known. And then the second verse is uh, in the New Testament. But notice what this says. Paul is describing, as he's writing to the Ephesian Christians, he's describing to them what their life was like before they were saved. He's reminding them of their lostness before they met Christ. And he says, remember... See, we've forgotten. Paul says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were separated from Christ without hope and without God in the world. Think about that. The unsaved person, no, they have no peace. They have no hope. They look to the future. They have no hope in life beyond the grave. Their only hope is that at death everything ends. This is why you're seeing even in, quote, Christian circles, 
a very liberal form of Christianity, but you're seeing the whole teaching of annihilationism surface and resurface, even amongst those that have been considered conservative Bible teachers and preachers. Annihilationism, the teaching that when you die, it's over, and there is, for the unsaved, there is no afterlife. There's some who teach if you're saved, when you die, you go to heaven. If you're unsaved, you don't, there is no such thing as hell. It's, it's just annihilationism. When you die, it's over. First of all, friend, let me say, that's not right. That's not true. That's not in the Bible. The Bible says whether you're saved or unsaved, when you die, it's not over. When you die, it's just beginning. And for those of us who are saved, we go to be with God. For those who are unsaved, they're separated from God. But Paul said before you met Christ, when you were separate from Christ, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Now, no peace, no hope, no God. That's what it's like to be unsaved, but that only describes what it's like to be unsaved now, in the here and now. Look at this verse in Matthew chapter 13 of these two verses. Jesus says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. That is, at the, end of, when we, at the very end of time, either when we die or if we're living when, it's all, when it all ends. Notice what it says. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them, now watch this, into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These unsaved people living around us who currently have no peace, they have no hope, and they do not have God. They're without God in this world. That is a horrible way to live. God says, the way of peace they have not known. And we look back at that and say, man, that's terrible. I wish they'd get saved so they could have peace and hope in God. But let me tell you something, friend. As bad as it would be to be unsaved now, this is not a drop in the bucket to what it will one day be. When the unsaved, just like the saved, will be gathered to heaven, the unsaved will be thrown into the fiery furnace, the NIV said, into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In our study of Revelation, we spent some time talking about hell and what the Bible says about hell. You know the thing today? You, you don't hear much about hell in church. In fact, the real truth is, in churches today, you don't hear much about heaven or hell. Why? Because people are not interested in either one. Even those who are going to heaven, most people are saying, well, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven one day, but give me something that'll help me right now. Well, I'll tell you something that'll help you right now is to know that there is a heaven and there is a hell, and knowing that's out there in the future determines how we live our life right now. One of the things that helps us endure hard times is thinking about heaven. That's why Scripture, Paul said, set your mind on things above. When Paul went through a hard time, the thing that got him through was he knew that what he was going through wouldn't last forever, that one of these days he was going to see Jesus. He said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a much greater good, and it's helping us prepare ourselves to stand before Christ and to see him. But this whole thing about hell, it's, it's seldom preached. The old-timey preachers, they used to say it this way. Back in the 50s and the 60s, they would say this. They would say to the young preachers, hey, man, when you get up there and preach, preach heaven sweet and preach hell hot and help people to know that there are two destinations. One is wonderful and one is horrible. But yet in our day, we think, well, you know, nobody wants to hear about hell because that's kind of a downer. And it's kind of discouraging. It's not too uplifting. And even those who are going to heaven, you know, they know it's out there, but they just will kind of want God to make their life better now. Friend, listen, at the, end of the, at the end of the journey, there are two destinations, and we need to have a concern in our hearts 
I think about people that I know, and I'm sure you do, who don't know Christ, what it's like for them now and what it will be like for them in eternity. It is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And we we have to have a concern. We have to care more about their well-being than we do our own comfort and our own pleasure and our own lives. A second thing it's going to take is a sense of urgency. It's not just a concern for the unsaved. It's a sense of urgency to say now that life can end suddenly. We saw what happened in Uvalde last week. These 21 lives ended just like that. And so we have to be about our Father's business now. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 9 and verse 4. Very interesting. He said, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus was saying, listen, I'm not going to be on this earth forever, and neither are you. But while we're here, we must do the works of him who sent me because night is coming. And when night falls, it's too late to work. There's a seminary, and they have on their, somewhere near their, one of their signs or marquees of that school, they have these words in the old King James, and it says, night cometh. And it is a reminder to those young seminarians, those young preachers who are preparing for the ministry, that what God's called you to do is not only important, but what God has called you to do is urgent. Night is coming, and when the night gets here, we can do no more work. You know, I believe in these last few years, God has given us a glimpse. God has given us a reminder, maybe a better way to say it, that life as we know it won't always be this way. One of my most vivid memories back in February of 2021 when we had the freeze, one Wednesday night, I had gotten with my parents, and we were just, we wanted to come up to the church and see how everything was doing up here, and we, we came up to the church and kind of checked it out, and we were driving back down Fairmont Parkway, and um, it was dark, and there were, the, elect, the power was all out, and it was on a Wednesday night, and I remember, I don't think I said anything to them, but I remember thinking as we were just driving down Fairmont Parkway, here it is, Wednesday night, when we would normally be in church. We're not having any church, because not any electricity. And here's a thought that ran through my mind. Well, what if somebody wanted to get saved tonight? Well, they, could, they don't have to be in church to get saved. They could still get saved. I thought, well, what if somebody wanted to get baptized tonight? Well, they don't get baptized tonight because you can't, we can't find the baptistry. It's dark. Then I thought this. This is a picture. God is giving us a picture of what it will one day be like on this earth we read about it in Revelation, when the, star, when the stars fall from the sky and the sun loses much of its brilliance and darkness will be so heavy on this earth that you can literally reach out and feel the darkness and there's coming a day when night will fall on this earth and whatever work we were going to do for Christ, we can no longer do it because that day of opportunity has ended. And so what do we need? We need a sense of urgency that this is the day that God has made. And not only are I rejoicing and be glad in it, but I want to use this day to help somebody who's unsaved to come to know Christ in a personal way. And we need a sense of urgency about us. And I don't know if the urgency is, is in the Christian community as much as it has been in previous generations, but we need that sense of urgency. And then the final thing we need is the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit's power. Look at our verse again. We've used it the last few weeks out of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Notice what Jesus said. But you shall receive, what's the next word? 
Say it again. Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be witnesses beginning where you are and then an expanding form of influence. But the power, listen, we talk about reaching all these people for Jesus and that's what we want to do. And everything I've said today is a prerequisite to that. But friend, listen to me. We can't reach anybody. We can't do anything as individuals or as a church without the Spirit of God coming upon us. The old song had it right. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And so I think about this vision that we have to try to reach all these people. And not just a vision, but a command from God to go and make disciples of all the ethnos, of all the people groups, of all the people in our community. This is what we'll be judged by, not by their response. That's between them and God but by our faithfulness to get them the gospel message, that's between us and God, and we'll leave the results in his hands. And I'm saying today that we need the Holy Spirit's power. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we made these little cards available, reach out five friends. And I have to be honest with you, and I have, this is, I've not written any names on this card, but as I started trying to make my own list of five friends, this was harder for me than I thought it would be. I didn't think I'd have any problem putting down the names of five unsaved people who are not in church. And yet, when I really got trying to do that, I have the same problem that many of you have. Most of my, I don't know that it's a problem, it's just the reality. Most of my friends are saved. And so I really had to think, and it's taken me quite a while to come up with five names. Now, ever since we brought this up, I've said to the staff, we've talked about it, I've said, I want us to have in a, in a service, a moment for, of prayer where we can pray that somehow, some way, the Spirit of God would fall in our midst and would fall in our presence and, and that he would, these people we're trying to reach, that he would speak to their hearts and he would speak to their lives and he would work. You know, I'll be honest with you, sometime, I, was at, I did a funeral the other day for a man in our church named Brad Anders. Brad and Becky, faithful members of our church, they joined several years ago from First Baptist Houston. They had met there 40 years ago, and they spent their many decades of their life under the preaching of John Bassanio, one of the greatest preachers in American history, godly, godly man who recently went to be with the Lord. And, uh, and anyway, at Brad's funeral, I had spoken early on in the service, and so when I got finished, I just went and sat down, and I was listening to the other people speak, and just during the service, they were talking about First Houston, and this was back in the 70s and 80s. Those were kind of the, not only the, the golden age for First Baptist Houston, but the 70s and 80s were the golden age for all the churches, because back in the 70s and 80s, you just had so many more people going to church in communities, and even before that, you know, America was just much more Christ-centered than it is today. And I'm sitting up here in the pulpit chair, just listening to everybody talk about First Baptist Houston in that era. And this thought ran through my mind. I thought, you know, I was born out of season. I wish I could have been a preacher and a pastor in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s. Because one thing, I like Andy Griffith, and I would have been good in, that, in Mayberry. I like that slower pace. I'm not a big, you know, but anyway. And um, I thought, God, if I could have just pastored a church back then, when, not everybody, but when the country was more 
God-centered and more people went to church. And I, it had just been, I know they had challenges back then. My dad and I talked about that. He said, yeah, there were, challenges. There were just different challenges then than there are now, but there were challenges. Service is going on. I'm looking around this big room and there was a good crowd for Brad's service, but this is a huge, this is a huge room. Over 2,800 people. I mean, if you're just packed in. And I felt like God, as I was looking around this room, spoke to my heart. And God said, you weren't born out of season. You were born in the season I had for you to be born. And you're not ministering out of season. You're ministering in the season I had for you to minister in. It is true that back then, churches were fuller, more people went, God was more of a priority, the culture, all that's true. But God brought to my mind those prophets, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, who were there in Jerusalem when the people came back from Babylonian captivity and they saw the decimated city and the temple that had been ruined by Nebuchadnezzar. And God said to Malachi and God said to Haggai and God said to Zechariah, you begin to prophesy, you begin to preach, and you begin to tell these people, Nehemiah and the others, that it is their job and that it is your job to rebuild for my glory what the Babylonians tore down. And I felt like God say to me, John, that's, your, that's the job of you and of, of this generation. It is to rebuild a country, a community, and to do our part, a world that has been in many ways torn down by the devil himself. But we're not out of season. Listen, we don't need to sit around and talk about the good old days. Remember what it says in one of those prophets? God said, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the glory of the former temple. Those old people that came back to Jerusalem, they said, oh, this is not as good as it used to be. And God said, stop talking like that. It's going to be better than it used to be because you're rebuilding a temple now that will be the home of Jesus Christ when he comes to this earth. He'll minister in that temple. He'll teach in that temple. And the glory of the latter temple will be greater than the glory of the former temple. But it all begins with prayer. And so here's what I want us to do today. I want us to pause for about two minutes. And I don't know if you've identified your five friends or not. Maybe during these couple of minutes, you can. But we look around this room and we see pews that are not full. We see places where unsaved people could be sitting this morning. We see places today that if unsaved people would have been sitting this morning and heard me describe what it was like to be unsaved and how Christ can change not only their lives, but their eternal destinies. If this place were full of unsaved people today, we would see not just dozens, we would see hundreds of people coming to Christ. And God says, yes, but it begins here. It's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. And all is vain unless the Holy Spirit comes down. So however you want to pray, I'm going to ask you to pray for those people in your life that don't know Christ. I'm going to ask you to pray for people in our community whom we don't even know. Maybe today if you're sitting next to an empty spot, you could just put your hand on that spot. Maybe if you're sitting today and it's not really an empty spot, look around this room. You'll find an empty pew. Just reach out your hand to that pew and say, God, fill that seat with somebody who needs Jesus. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, whatever God is leading you and how God might be leading you to pray today, pray for our community and for the unsaved and pray that in time, to the glory of God, this room would be filled with people who need Christ.
God, I pray first of all that you would put in our hearts not just a concern, but a passion and even an obsession for unsaved people that we may be the only thing standing between them and eternity in hell. Burden our souls for not only the condition of the unsaved, but God, for the destination of the unsaved. God, create in us as individuals and as a church a sense of urgency that we would be about our Father's business now, that we would not just be at ease in Zion with our families and our lives, but that we would invest our life in kingdom work. And Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit in a fresh way would fall on us as a church, that would fall on this community. I pray for a fresh outpouring of your Spirit in this community and on our church and our individual lives. God, I pray it would begin in me. And I pray it would begin in everyone here today. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed, that first thing I said today that it's going to take for us to reach our community, we're going to have to have a security in our own relationship with Jesus. Do you know that you're saved today? Do you know that you're saved? We're seeing, I think, probably last week, 10 or 12 people between both services got saved. We're seeing that virtually every week, some weeks more. If you would say, John, I don't have that security. I'm not, I'm not fully convinced that if I died today that I'd go to heaven. I might end up in that blazing furnace. I just don't know. Well, friend, God doesn't want you to stay in that doubting condition. He wants you to know for sure that you're saved. Would you pray this prayer now? Say, Lord Jesus, I need to know that I'm saved. I can't help reach the unsaved if I don't know that I'm saved. I'm asking you to come into my heart. Forgive my sins. And make me a Christian. Lord, I ask you to save me. And Lord, I trust you to do it. 